0: gave him fair warning. Okay. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Glad you're all here on this beautiful morning. You guys want to stand with me? We'll um, do the call to worship and whether you've had a good week or um, a bad week. Ultimately, our hope is not in earthly kingdoms or in earthly princes, but in the Lord who made heaven and earth. So we'll we'll read about this in Psalm 146 in our call to worship. So if you'll do the um, italicized section, I'll read the bold section. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes... In a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose hope is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. If you want to turn with me to song number two, we'll sing, In Christ Alone. who God is and um, we've seen that our trust should not be in earthly princes or kingdoms but in the Lord who made heaven and earth. But if we're honest that oftentimes our trust is in the world whether it's money or family or fame that um, often our trust is not in the God of heaven. So as we confess our sins this morning we'll be looking at the Lord's Prayer and we'll be reminded to look heavenward um, in the introduction to also confess our sins and that ultimately will pray for resolve to be delivered from our trespasses. So if you'll read with me um, from Matthew 6. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. If you want to stay standing, we'll turn to song number three. Um, Sing nothing but the blood. Song, that even though we are sinners um, and that God is holy, that for those that are washed in the blood of Jesus, our rope will be made clean. So our assurance of pardon this morning comes from Romans 10. Paul says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it is not that we first clean up ourselves. It is not that we have more good deeds than bad. It is by confessing that Christ is Lord and that by faith we are justified before God. And so all those that call on the Lord this morning can be assured that that they will be saved. So will you um, pray with me? Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, we come before you this morning confessing that we often look to the things of this world for our comfort, for our joy and satisfaction. But this morning may our eyes be upon you. May we look to the blood of Christ to cleanse us And may we remember the Father's plan for redemption, the Son coming and accomplishing that redemption, and the Spirit applying that work by faith. We pray that we would rest in that this morning, and that um, whether we are downtrodden by our sin or proud, would you humble us, Lord, and show us the goodness of your grace. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You guys can be seated. confession of faith this morning comes from the shorter catechism question 109 and like I say most weeks that in the confession of faith we're just seeking to confess true things about God that have been passed down through the ages and so a question that can often be asked about prayer we're going to look at prayer more this morning is what is it is it a means to barter with God is it a means to get what we want from him but the scriptures declare that it's actually a response to God For who He is and out of gratitude for what He's done. And so this is what the Catechism is seeking to answer is, what is prayer? So if you'll respond with me, the answer. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Amen. Okay. Good morning again. If you guys want to turn with me to Acts chapter four, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we've been trying to take a big, big, big picture view of what is Acts. We'll be in Acts 22 through 31 today, and just as a brief overview, we've we've tried to look at what the author of Acts, Luke, has to say about about um, this book of Acts. That it is not merely the actions of men or merely historical events, but it's actually more than that. It is the Acts of the Risen Lord. And he said that the Gospel of Luke is all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication is that Acts is what Christ continues to do and teach from his ascended place in heaven. And so we saw this, even as far as um, chapter one, verse eight, where Christ says, that you will be given power by the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we see an outline, not only for the book of Acts, but for the rest of human history, that this gospel of the ascended Lord, of forgiveness of sins, is going to cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so we saw this ascension of Christ. We saw this commissioning of his disciples. And then we also saw this act of Pentecost, this outpouring of the Spirit on this day of Pentecost. And we talk about some of the implications of that and then we saw Peter's sermon after Pentecost, this spirit-filled sermon where um, he points to Christ in the Old Testament as a fulfillment of Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And then most recently, we've looked at this healing of the lame beggar that started in chapter three. And it's sort of interesting. I remember saying that, we, that this healing of this one man has huge implications for the early church, that not only were 3,000 saved, after Pentecost, but after the healing of this man, after the preaching of Peter, that 5,000 are added to the church. And so we see these people gather after this miraculous healing. We see Peter proclaim the gospel of Christ, their need to repent and turn to Christ. And in last week, we looked at the opposition to this, that the religious leaders of the day, namely the Sadducees and this council, are coming against the believers are coming against specifically the apostles Peter. And so today we'll look at their response to that. So last week we, we saw that they asked them to remain silent, to not proclaim this name of Christ. And so what's going to happen? Because up until this point, they have not faced opposition, right? There's been outpouring of the Spirit, many added, and they haven't really faced this opposition. And even back in Acts 2, it says they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread and the prayers. So this question can kind of loom. Are they going to do this? Or is opposition going to stop their message? Is it going to stop the proclamation of the gospel? And really this great commission that Christ promised. So we'll be looking at that today. So if you want to follow along with me, we'll be reading Acts 4, verses 23 through 31. This is the word of the Lord. And when they were released, this is from the Sadducees, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of the Lord with boldness. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you this morning for your infallible and errant word that you have graciously given us um, to preserve and propagate this great gospel of Christ dying for sinners like us. And we pray this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see um, how these disciples respond to opposition, to see the great prayer that they prayed, and that we would have resolve to know that our kingdom is not of this earth, but it um, it is a heavenly kingdom that you have prepared for us, and we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. We pray that you would give us faith this morning to hear and to um, have faith. In your name we pray. Amen. So yeah, like I said, up to this point, there has not been opposition. So that question remains. What is going to happen? And we um, we see the answer to this question in our verses today. So first we'll look at the response of the disciples in verses 23 through 30. And then we'll look at the reply that is given, if you will. So this response, it's, it's interesting if you look at it, it says, what's the first thing that they do? It says they went to be with their friends and they prayed. And so I think it's important to notice what they didn't do. They didn't go start a public protest. They didn't start a smear cam- campaign for the Sadducees, right? They went and prayed. But they also did, they didn't do something else. They didn't shrink back. They didn't water down their message. They ask for boldness to proclaim this message. And just pointing out that um, this should be our response, that we sh- whenever we face opposition, our first instinct should not be to make a fuss or to hearken back or to pull back, but it should be to meet with God's people, his people here, and, and to pray and to ask for strength and for boldness. And so that's what we see them do. So nextly, we'll look at their prayer. And we see that um, early on in chapter in, in, sorry, in verse 24. and So first we'll look at who their prayer is addressed to. Notice they address it to the Sovereign Lord. So they're not only addressing Him as Lord, the one that created all things, but the one that is ultimately in control of all things. And so we might ask this question, why pray to this Sovereign Lord? Why use these words here? Two things. First is to reassure them of who was in control. Because these Sadducees, they think they're Lord. They think that they can silence the message of the people. They think they can go against them. And they think that they are ultimately the Lord. And ultimately we know that even Satan that's ultimately motivating these Sadducees to oppose this message, he thinks that he is Lord. And so in this prayer, in um, speaking to God as the sovereign Lord, there's great comfort in knowing that he is ultimately the Lord. And then secondly... This also brings true and lasting comfort, and if you look there in verses 27, it says, and 28, he says, for truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And then what does he say in verse 28? To do whatever your hand and your hand, your plan, had predestined to take place. And so you might ask, how is this comforting? That That this persecution of Christ, and even them, into a sense, was planned by God. How is this comforting? And I think the world even has a very shallow picture of this. You've maybe seen it in a Hallmark card or something, where it'll say, you know, the universe has a plan for your life, or if something goes wrong, you know, some sort of Hallmark saying like that. It's sort of the shallow understanding of um, everything's going to be okay, everything's going to work out. But... Paul gives us a deeper sense of this in Romans 8.28 when he says that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And that can ask us to ask the question, Paul, how can you say that? How can you say that all things, all things, good and bad, are going to work for our good? How can we trust that this is true? And if we're honest, we often question this, right? Right. We often don't see how some things could be for our good. We were talking this morning about you know, Daryl's sickness. How can that be for good? Some of us are struggling with depression, with anxiety, with real sin. How can this be for our good? How can the afflictions that we face be for our good? And we could even maybe enter the head of the disciples a little bit and think, God, you said that this gospel was going to go to the nations, right? It's going to go to the ends of the earth why is this opposition happening? Why, is this, why are you allowing this? Um, but it's actually the grounds of their assurance and their comfort, knowing that God is working all these things for his good um, and his glory. And so it actually is the foundation of their comfort. And so this doesn't mean that this is easy, but we see here the disciples model, model this reliance on the sovereign God. So we've looked at who this prayer is addressed to, and now we'll look at what the prayer is and some aspects of it. So, firstly, we'll look at that this prayer is according to Scripture. You might have picked up on um, the little hint that our call to worship was taken from Psalm 146. You'll notice some similar language there between this God who made heaven and earth, and then also what the apostle—I mean, what the disciples pray here um, in verse 24. So we hear Psalm 146 in this prayer, but we also see Psalm 2 quoted. And so Psalm 2 is um, the second Psalm. <laughs> I wish we could talk more about Psalm 2 and Psalm 1. There's some amazing things about that being an introduction to the whole book of Psalms. But what is Psalm 2 about? It is about this anointed king, this anointed king that is facing persecution, facing trial. But as the Psalm moves on, his eyes look upward and he sees that ultimately God has decreed that he will set his king on Zion, his holy hill, and that... The Lord of Heaven actually laughs at the plans of evil men, that, that they cannot be thwarted by him. And by the end, the king is set on Zion, his holy hill, and the Lord is ultimately vindicated. But it's interesting that we can see David's life in this psalm, right? He was the anointed one who was going to be king. He also faced opposition, right, to Saul, the king, who was tried to kill him multiple times. <laughs> But ultimately, David was vindicated. He was decreed to be the king, and he was set on Zion, the holy hill. But even more than that, we can see how the disciples are reading this passage in Psalm 2. And we talked about this a little bit last week, that they are reading this passage, not through the lens of self, but through a Christ-centered lens. That they are ultimately seeing Christ and his work in Psalm 2. And so, Christ is this anointed king, who is persecuted by his people, but ultimately vindicated and set in the heavenly Mount Zion. And so it's just amazing <laughs> to think about this. And this is actually bringing the disciples comfort. Another whole layer to that comfort is them looking to the scriptures and seeing Christ. So not only is their prayer according to scripture, but it is a humble request. We see this in verses 29 and 30 that notice they're not demanding that God do something. They're not saying, how dare you allow this? You know, take this away. They, it says in verse 29, look upon their threats. So it is not a telling God what to do, and we can see this modeled by Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He's praying um, that this cup would pass from him, but ultimately he says, not my will, but yours be done. So it's this humble request but then we also see them pray for boldness. It says, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So this is an admission that they're weak, that they um, are unable to do this without the power of God, without the Spirit of God giving them boldness to proclaim this message. And then we also see them asking signs and wonders perform. talked about this before, but ultimately these signs confirmed the work of the apostles, that it confirmed their message, and um, these were um, confirmation. They bore witness to what was done. And so if we think about them as signs, that's the nature of a sign. If you're driving to Bloomington, you see a sign that says Bloomington. The sign is not Bloomington. (laughs) It's pointing to Bloomington. So that's the nature of signs. They don't point to themselves, they point to the things that they signify. And so, they're asking that God would work through them, that they would vindicate their message, confirm their message, and that um, that ultimately that God um, would show that these are his messengers. And so finally we see their re- the reply that God gives in verse 31, and it says, When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The word of God with boldness. So, um, sort of an interesting passage, you know. Next time we pray, should we expect, uh, expect the ground to shake or, you know, what's happening here? I think that is a legitimate question. But if we look back just two chapters before in the events of Pentecost, what happens? There was a mighty rusting wind, almost the shaking you can imagine. The people were filled with the Spirit and they spoke. And so, there's some parallels here. And I think that we can say that even in the face of persecution, that God is going to be with his people to fill them and to empower them. And just another interesting thing to point out um, in the Old Testament that maybe maybe might have triggered um, this language is in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. Haggai was um, commissioning these people to build the second temple, right? The temple that eventually... Christ and even these um, disciples would walk through, and he says something interesting. He says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake, notice this language, the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Very similar to Psalm 146 and even the prayer that we read today. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter, ho- latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And so we see that there's sort of this shadowy picture of the, the glory of the house of the Lord will be more glorious than the former. And we can see this in the church That through Christ and his church, that the glory of the church is greater than the, the temple, right? That by Christ giving his people his spirit, that we are the dwelling place of God, in a sense. And that his church is this special dwelling place of God among men on the earth. And that this is the nature of the Great Commission. It's a temple building, essentially. It is seeing this gospel go out throughout the nations... Christ pouring out his spirit at Pentecost so that this gospel might go out. So we see here that this message cannot be stopped and that God is building his church even in the face of opposition. So that's the verses. So let's let's step back and observe a couple things. Three things. First, that reverent, spirit-filled prayer should be our response to opposition. And I think if we're honest that it's often not <laughs> And I can speak for myself that my first response to opposition or to even fear is not to pray. It's often to text or call someone and say, can you believe this? Or it is to shrink back and to not be bold. And so um, just that to say that we see the disciples here model this, that our first response to opposition should be to pray, and that um, not only privately, but publicly, that we should come together as God's people and petition the Lord reverently, um, that he would answer our prayers. And so you might say, okay, well, why is this important? And so the second thing is that because prayer is a means of grace, and this might not be language that we're familiar with, but what is a means of grace? Essentially, it is the way that God has ordained to bring grace to his people um, to bring grace to his people, to the souls of his people, ultimately, that what has Christ done? He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has purchased these benefits, right? Grace upon grace. And how do those benefits get from the right hand of the Father to us? It is by the Spirit. It's by the Spirit. But how does, this, how does the Spirit work, right? That's the question. What are the means that the Spirit uses You know, is someone just walking along the sidewalk, you know, minding their own business, and the Spirit zaps them (laughs) and saves them. That's not what the scriptures say. It says that the Spirit uses means, namely the preaching of the gospel, the ministry of the word, the Lord's Supper, baptism, and prayer. That these are means that God uses to strengthen and encourage his people, and ultimately to save them. And so, when we hear this in Romans 10, what's it say in Romans 10? That faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of the Lord. That this is the means of, of grace. That whether you're an unbeliever or, an un, or a believer, that this, the way that we receive grace and faith is through the ministry of the word and through prayer. And that the Spirit gives this power and faith rises up in us. So prayer is a means that God uses to change us. And hopefully that we've seen this in our lives, right? Whether we've Struggled tragedy, or suffering, that we go to God and we ask for help and, um, and grace. And it's strengthened us, hopefully, by His Spirit, um, prayer strengthens us. And so, whether it's in the face of sin or suffering or persecution, may we pray to the Lord, because it is a means of grace that God has given us. So, may our response be prayer, because it is a means of grace. And then lastly, the kingdom of God cannot be shaken. And many of us know there's much turmoil in the world right now. now, whether from within or from without. There's much uncertainty as to what the world looks like and what is happening, and this can cause us to question God, if we're honest. What is happening? Why are you allowing this? The church is being persecuted, people are dying, all these things, why allow this? But we can trust and know that the kingdom of God cannot be shaken. And why is that is because um, it is a heavenly kingdom and that rulers and kings can set themselves against the Lord, but He (laughs) sits in the heavens and He laughs at their plans because they are ultimately working towards His ends. And that whatever trouble we face, um, we can take comfort knowing that Christ has entered the heavenly kingdom. He has entered the heavenly Mount Zion. And when we come to worship Him, On his day, that is the that is what we enter. We enter the heavenly um, Jerusalem. We enter Mount Zion, and we read about this in Hebrews 12. I'll close with this. He says, "For you have not come to what may be touched—a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest—but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heaven, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem." And to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. (laughs) Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty, that you are in control of all things and that even though we struggle with great doubt, with great sin and um, with suffering, Lord, we throw ourselves onto you, the rock of ages, um, knowing that you are in control and we rely and trust on you. And um, give us strength, Lord, give us faith by your word, by prayer that we might be strengthened with all boldness to speak forth Your Word, to um, trust in You. And this week as we go, would You give us great strength and great peace. In Your name we pray. Amen. If you guys want to stand with me, we'll sing song number five, Solid Rock. Will sing with me the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings
1: flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and
0: is the end of Psalm 2 where we um, read these words. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Grace and peace as you go we'll hang out for a little bit and then we'll do a little informational meeting in 5 to 10 minutes so